0: Holy Spirit, fall on us today. Remind us that your presence is ever present, that you're always available, that it's you who calls us into this space and into every space of our lives, and there's nowhere we can go to depart ourselves from you. That you are here with us and that you wish to continue to shape and mold us. God, we know that you are, in fact, making us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Continue to renew our minds and shape our hearts. Remind us of what it means to change and to grow and to become more healthy and whole people, the the people you've created us to be. Continue to remind us of our value and that we are deeply loved. Give you thanks in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one who raised from the dead and gives us life now, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Back in 2015, um, a United Methodist pastor, and if you didn't know, we're a United Methodist church um, in many ways. Um, a United Methodist pastor took his own life. Uh, committed suicide. I uh, i didn't know him well, but as a colleague, I had certainly met him, and um, I'm very close friends with some of his close friends, and so, you know, we're Run in the same circles, so to speak. What had happened um, is that he had uh, had an affair with a staff member at the church, and he um, had been in conversation with our conference and with our bishop, and had been uh, was going to go on leave, voluntary leave and receive counseling and kind of have a season of healing. So in all respects, it was handled, I don't know the details, but handled, you know, with sensitivity and with concern for those involved. And the church was even allowing him to stay in in, in the church-owned house and and, and be on salary for a period temporarily as he kind of figures out what's next. And so they were kind of set up um, for this thing to be dealt with. But a letter had gone out to the church telling them what had happened. And... It was a surprise to everyone to find out that he had taken his own life. You know, I I can be really hard on church leaders, um, uh, especially when it comes to indiscretion. I I often feel that it's not dealt well. It is one of the things that I have historically liked about our denomination is they handle indiscretion. Uh, Professionally and with a a certain level of care and intentionality, there are processes in place, as opposed to other denominations that kind of put a blind eye to inappropriate behavior done by priests and pastors. We deal with it. I've had a friend spend time in prison because of indiscretion and et cetera. But I tend, I can be very hard on pastors and leaders because, in our context, I've seen in a. Immense abuse of power, but I was thinking about today, and here's an individual who made a mistake, you know. And probably not just one, right? Probably a series of small failures that escalated over time. That's how these things work. They kind of grow over time and reached a point, and I can't speak to even begin to comprehend what was going through his mind other than to project my own experiences of, of despair and I've certainly been, I've certainly despaired. Maybe you haven't. I'm guessing many of you have, where I felt I couldn't go on. You know, I can't can't live this life anymore. I can't really imagine what was going through his head, but I, I can project my own experiences and say, I wonder if he felt like a failure had reached a point where it just had become final. We're in a series talking about how failure isn't final. And I set out to look at two failures in Scripture. One at the person of Saul, and today we're going to look at Judas. I didn't realize, I didn't connect the dots until after I'd begun the study that both of these individuals' stories end with suicide. Which at first kind of feels like the opposite of, of the whole series, right? It almost feels like failure is final sometimes. But I want to remind you, and I said this last week, and I think it's very important as we wrestle with what it means to grapple with life and death, that failure isn't final, not even in death. That's, that's literally the whole Christian message, isn't it? <laughs> that there's resurrection and death. That even if something happens to a loved one, that that's not the end. And so that even death has lost its sting, is what Scripture says. It doesn't bite anymore. And it still does, of course, on an emotional level. We still feel the sting. But theologically, and in the big picture of the world, we understand that it doesn't. That that even in death, failure isn't final. I want to look at the story of Judas. And the thing about Judas is you already know where the story is going to end. It reminds me of the, the, the very popular play, Hamilton. Have you experienced this? Um, Alyssa watched it every week for about a year. It was like our, pand- it was our pandemic counseling or something. But, you know, at the very beginning, um, Aaron Burr, that's his name, right? He, he, he's, he, he shouts out right at the beginning what he's going to do, right? And I'm the fool who shot him, I think is the line, yeah. That's how Judas' story starts out. We know exactly where it's headed. But the journey's still worth taking. Uh, I want to pull up Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This is where we're introduced to Judas, and this is what I mean by that. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the damn fool who shot him. The one who betrayed him. We're told right at the beginning who this guy is. I want to pause, though, and think about this. You know, this story was written for people who are already familiar with the Easter story. They already knew where things were headed. They already were familiar with Jesus dying on the cross and his resurrection. The Gospels were written after the letters uh, in the early church. So this was written for people who already knew the basic gist of the story. They knew what would happen with Judas. And so it's no point keeping it hidden in the story. But one of the things that I really want to sit with with this verse in particular, as we before we move on to some others and look at Judas, Judas's story, is Judas was a disciple of Jesus. Jesus. Scripture doesn't deny that. He was technically, and officially, and formally a disciple of Jesus. And, and here's what we have to start with, and this is, this is very, very important. Even though he was technically And officially, and formally, he was on the roster as a disciple of Jesus. What we learned in the story was that he wasn't really a disciple of Jesus. Because it's one thing to carry the badge, to claim to be a follower of Jesus, to to have a church membership card, which we don't have. But, you know, like, it's one thing to have it officially and technically and formally. You've been baptized, you've been dipped in the rivers, and your sin has been taken down the Jordan. I love that song. You've been baptized. You're, you're in. And it's another thing to be a person who's actually allowing Jesus' teachings to shape your life. See, those aren't, those aren't necessarily the same thing. Judas was technically a disciple of Jesus Christ. He, he was called apart, set apart amongst a crowd of people to become a disciple of Jesus. And yet what we learn in his story is that he wasn't allowing this new way of experiencing the world to change how he thought about the world. To change how he experienced the world. His view of the world, and we'll see this in the next couple passages that we look at, was still deeply influenced by the world, and not by this new kingdom that God was coming to shape. All right, let's pull up John chapter uh, 12, verses 1 through 6. This is uh, one of the places where Judas pops up in the Gospels. John chapter 12, 1 through 6. I think I have those verses somewhere. If not, I'll read them for you. Uh, It says this, six days before the Passover. Oh, uh, you know what? I might not have these up. Yeah, sorry. We'll start with verse 4. This, the story that Judas, um, Judas is with Jesus and the 12 disciples, and they're on the way to Jerusalem, and they're going to experience the, the passion narrative we'll get to here in a few weeks as we prepare for Easter— But uh, they're in Bethany, and uh, they're eating, and this woman comes into the room. It's a story that all the Gospels tell the story about, and she anoints Jesus with this really expensive perfume. It's this beautiful symbolic of how he's going to be buried, and it's an act of worship, but it's expensive, and and she just wastes it on Jesus, right? That's just the story. It's this extravagant love. It doesn't make any sense. But uh, this is what happens. This is how Judas responds to it, at least in the Gospel of John. He says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was... later to betray him they really don't want you to forget this fun fact the the fact is that this Judas is this great villain you know in the early church and in in the gospels in particular I mean he's just he's just embraced as a villain I I, I want to in this series and same with last week humanize him a little bit I, I, I think he was you know he made he he messed up all right? He engaged in failure, but we all do, and so we want to unpack what was different about Judas that made him so terrible. Um, so, but the early church didn't think that highly of him. Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, ejected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? That's a good question. Now this, is, this, this is a great question. The perfume wasn't doing much other than it was an act of worship, you know, which I hear is important, and but it, wasn't, it didn't have a practical purpose. And Judas asked the very logical question, why isn't this money being given to the poor? Now, here's the thing you have to realize, and this is one of the first places that we experience failure in the life of Judas, is it's possible to be technically right about something and to still miss it. This is the first lesson in failure, and and it's it's a hard lesson for us to learn. It's something I'm still figuring out. You could be technically right in a situation and still miss all the cues. Your heart might not be in the right place. Technically, Judas is right in some ways. Like, it's not a bad question, and yet it's his first act of failure. We're given into, uh, we're, we're allowed to see his inner motives. Verse six, he says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Appearing righteous is not the same as being righteous. It's, it's entirely possible. It happens all the time. Judas is not that original. That's the sad part about Judas's story. He's not original. It's entirely possible to say and do all the right things. To use all the right Christian, you know, to figure out what Christians like, what other Christians in your community like, and to ask those questions or to pose those comments and just put it out there. And for there not to be any change in your heart. That's what we see with Judas. He knew what to say. He knew what to do. He knew, technically, he knew what Jesus cared about. But in his heart, there was something else going on. He happened to be addicted to money. He had a deep love for it, and that was what was shaping his heart. We see this all the way to the point where Judas betrays Jesus. Matthew 26, starting with verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? See, the chief priests were trying to figure out how to get Jesus arrested, but he was so popular amongst the crowds that they couldn't do it in the public. They had to do it secretly. And so they had to figure out a way to find him at night, wherever he might be in the city or the surrounding area of Jerusalem. And they needed an inside man. And Judas decides to say, hey, what would you pay me to hand Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Um, fun fact, I don't have a great lesson here, but for people who are interested in the, you know, how the Bible connects, this is referencing two Old Testament stories um, that could add an extra layer of interest or uh, of, um, of lesson, potentially, if you dig into it. Um, 30 pieces of silver is applied in two other places in the Old Testament. first one is in Zechariah chapter 11. There was a shepherd, uh, the, the prophet Zechariah is uh, filling the role as a shepherd, and he's, he's looking over sheep who are uh, set to go to the slaughter. So a shepherd for sheep who are going to be slaughtered, who are going to be butchered, who are going to be sacrificed in their Old Testament worship. And uh, he's paid to watch over the sheep, and then he deserts his flock. You can kind of see how this ties into Judas's story a little bit. Paid to, he deserts his flock, a sheep, set up to be slaughtered. I'll let you connect the dots. The second one is Exodus 21, verses 32 to 33. 30 pieces of silver was the amount that you had to pay if you hurt someone else's servant. Interesting connection. So the story at Exodus is like if your cow or your bull runs over a servant and hurts them, you have to slaughter the cow. They don't get to live anymore, and you got to pay the person who owned that slave, because this was slave culture at the time, um, 30 pieces of silver to make up for the fact that their servant, their slave, had been wounded. Judas is paid 30 pieces of silver to hand over the servant of God in this story. Going on. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Money is central to Judas's betrayal, to to his failure. What's happening in Judas's heart and his love for money is at the, the heart of his story money had begun to shape his heart and his mind, and he was a disciple of money. That's Judas's story. That's what His goals were around money, right? I mean, we can project and we can speculate a little bit. His motivation was around money, so he had goals around making a certain amount and receiving a certain amount, and he always needed more. Judas is a fantastic character to reflect in the capitalist American Christianity, if we're honest. You know... One of the lessons that we have in failure today is one of the greatest failures you can do in life is being successful at the wrong stuff. Success in America is very apparent. And I I, I want to talk about success in America for a second because I happen to be a big fan of comforts. I, um, for me, it's all about houses and stuff. I mean, okay, so you know Jeff Bezos and his like yacht and the bridge thing? We were talking about it in staff the other day. We were debating which billionaires were worse. We won't get into it. I happen to like Elon Musk a little bit, so don't get me started. But um, I know, I know, it's unpopular opinion. Guys on the spectrum, I got a special place in my heart for him. So, um, but we're, this this is what we do as staff before meetings. And um, uh, so I was reminded of, and here's the thing, I, I'm a little, you know, he's got this giant yacht and they're gonna, have to, they're gonna have to take down a bridge to get it through and it's like, ah, billionaires, ah. All this sort of grumpy uh, disdain. I'm gonna be honest with you. I would enjoy a yacht very much. <laughs> and I understand some of you couldn't get past the guilt of it. And I'm not saying I would be able to get past the guilt of it but I think there's ways <laughs> that can help that. I, I've been in a few nice houses. And you all know, many of you know the story of my house. We bought a fixer-upper, ugliest house in Franklinton. And you know, we have made some rooms pretty nice and I like showing off pictures, I've shown a few of you. But I mean, it's a piece of junk. But I, I love nice houses, big houses. I remember in college we went to a big house It was on a lake. It wasn't even the guy's main house. It was this like lake house. Like five stories, had a theater room. I was like, I want a house with a theater room. I love watching movies. I would enjoy it. I'm just going to own that. The nicest house I I think we stayed in was uh, we we got an Airbnb 50% off. I had to qualify that because I'm a good middle class person. You know you're middle class if you tell people how much your vacation cost. Do you know what I'm saying? Any other middle-class raised people are like, I went on vacation, but I got this all, like this discount, this discount. Like You qualify your vacation based on how much it costs. That's me. I do it all the time. I don't think I'm ever going to stop, no matter how much money I make. But uh, we got this Airbnb 50% off because uh, it was a last-minute scheduled thing, and we just were going to go away for the weekend. And it was, I mean, it had... You know, the outdoor hot tub. It had, like, this shower that's just, like, in the bathroom. The bathroom was bigger than our bedroom. I mean, it was just, like, this massive space. It had jacuzzi in there. It had a theater room, <laughs> which is important. Success in the American culture is, um, you know, it's, it, you can't avoid it. And, and, I, I, and I'm not one to, to say that I wouldn't enjoy nicer things. But, and it's a big but. Jesus makes it very clear. Matthew six twenty four is one of the whole reasons why Judas's story is included in the Gospels because it's an illustration of this principle. Matthew six twenty four: You can no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The word here for money means manan. Um, It's referencing potentially an Aramaic word. There's There's a lot of questions around this word. It's a confusing word. It means riches. One way to interpret it is riches you trust in. The Aramaic word for riches is related in some ways to the Hebrew word amen, which means to trust. And so it's rooted in this idea of wealth that you put your trust in. And I'll be honest with you, I'm much more comfortable in life. This is the first season, and I've said this before, this is the first season me and Alyssa are not worried about our finances. And and I have to wrestle with that. If I'm less anxious because we have money, where is my trust? Jesus would say you can't serve two masters. And here's what my point is, and this is the whole point of Judas' story. If you set goals, and you become a disciple of finances and of money, and, and that becomes your desire, and that's what you're working towards, it will shape your heart. Jesus says in, this, in another place in Matthew 6 and 5, 5, 6, and 7 somewhere, he says, uh, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The other way around. Where your where treasure... Wait, what is it? I'm confusing myself. Where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. The thing that you long for, the thing that you want, that's where your heart's going to end up. My, my uh, uh, senior pastor, the pastor at our parent church, Paul Reisler, used to always say, and it's very formative for me, he says, I want you to give to Central Avenue, that was our parent church, not be- just because you know we need the money or whatever, but because I want your heart. And where your treasure is, is where your heart's going to be and we give to God and we give to things that God cares about because where our treasure is it actually changes our hearts I promise you it'll actually change your heart and so if you're not and you're investing in things that I would love to have like a yacht and if you have one you know i would be a great staff retreat I'm just saying so (laughs) just keep that in mind but The thing that you care about, the thing that you set goals around, the thing that you really, your heart will be shaped by that. And what are you allowing to shape your heart? The ways and teachings of Jesus or something else? And maybe for you it isn't money. I'm guessing that in our context and in our country, there's a good chance it is. Money is playing a role in what's shaping your heart. There's a good chance for that. I'm just saying that as your pastor, it's something you need to wrestle with, something you need to think about. For Judas, it's 100% a part of his story. It shows up over and over again. From his questions around the woman who's worshiping Jesus to ultimately why he betrays, it's because money had begun to shape his heart. And his character was a reflection of that. It goes on in Matthew 26, uh, 20 through 25. We see Judas again. He says, um, uh, Jesus is gathering with his disciples for Passover. And it says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Jesus wasn't ignorant of this fact. He knew it. And they were very sad. That would be disappointing to hear. And they began to say to him one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And just remember, that's how they say it. Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand to the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who just betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Some harsh words. Reminds me of Job. He said something like this once. When, when, when suffering or failure hits its ultimate Peak. This is how we often feel. I just wish I hadn't been born. It's not the same as feeling like you should die. It's not the same as feeling that you need to take your own life. It's different, but you see it throughout Scripture. When desperation and pain and suffering and failure reach just the ultimate level, we feel this way, or we can. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, and notice how he says it a little differently. It's his turn to, to counter. He says, surely you don't mean me, rabbi. Something's interesting in Matthew, um, Matthew pulls a lot from the Gospel of Mark. Mark uses the word rabbi and Lord sort of interchangeably, but wherever the disciples uh, refer to Jesus as rabbi and Mark, you see uh, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, which we're reading here, changes it to Lord. And so you see this pattern in Matthew where Lord in the Gospel of Matthew is used mostly by inside people. His disciples who are following Jesus. And rabbi was the word used by outside people who weren't following Jesus but talking about Jesus. And there's, there, neither one is derogatory. Rabbi meant teacher, and you often followed them. You'd learn from them. Obviously, Lord meant master in a slave-servant culture, whether right or wrong. Master, that's what we're talking about. And, they, and so what we see in the Gospel of Matthew is the disciples would call him Lord, and Judas called him rabbi. Which is a lesson in itself, isn't it? You can't serve two masters. Judas's master wasn't Jesus, according to the Gospel of Matthew. It was money. And so he referred to Jesus as rabbi, as teacher. And it's possible, once again, for us to view Jesus as a great teacher, but not willing to accept Jesus as our Lord which includes Lord over the things that we wish we had <laughs> and Lord over our finances, Lord over our assets, Lord over our money, Lord over our time, et cetera. For Judas, Jesus was nothing more than a rabbi. He goes on, um, the dinner, they have dinner, we'll, we'll experience that this, uh, this next Holy Week. We'll, we'll, we'll be doing a podcast for each day and you, we'll spend some time with the dinner and washing of the feet But uh, later that night, they end up in a garden, and this is where um, uh, Judas betrays him. He says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, you didn't even know Judas had left, but he left somewhere in the dinner and went, got the guards, and he comes with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. We know where the story goes from there. Jesus is arrested. He's put on trial, sort of. He's beaten. He's stripped. He's hung on a cross. He dies. He's buried. And ultimately rises again. But before he rises again, before that ever happens, we're told what happens to Judas. Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. Now, we already know where Judas' story ends. I gave it away. But what I want us to do is set that aside for a second. Because I actually think in this next passage of Scripture, Judas is a really great example to all of us, which is interesting to think about. Judas is actually modeling uh, what we should do when we fail. Almost to the T. He misses out one part, and that's the only thing. That's, that's, that's he misses it, and it's to his own demise. But otherwise, he nails it. Other than this one thing he forgets to do, he, or refuses to do, he actually models what we should do when we have those big failures, when we've really messed up, when money has shaped our heart, and we, we, we do something, or, or lust, or we, whatever, the big ones. He models really well. This is what he does. He says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, he says I have sinned he said for I have betrayed innocent blood they say what is that to us that's your responsibility great guys if there's any more villains in in the Gospels it's the religious rulers it um, we, we're given just one side of the religious rulers there there are some uh, good ones uh, in the Gospels but most of them are painted as villains um, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Okay, up to that point, Judas nails it. I mean, there's, not a, there, there's literally not much more he could do to make this right. I think I have a slide for this. Do, do I have a slide in there? Yeah, he's sorry, he shows remorse in his heart. Like this is the first time like, we're, we're, we're shown, like up to this point, we're told that his heart is just wants more money. But at this point, we see that there's something going on in his heart that's actually deeper than that. He is sorry. And and friends, that's that's really important. When we mess up, we have to allow ourselves to feel that, to to feel remorse. I I regret it. That was bad. Now, we can't sit in that. We can't live in it. But it's important. It's an important part of the process. He returns the money. I mean, come on. What else can he do? He returns the money. He doesn't keep it or anything. He's like, no, I can't have any part of this anymore. He acknowledges Jesus' innocence. He says, you know that Jesus is innocent. He says it in an indirect way. He says, I betrayed innocent blood. But he acknowledges Jesus is innocent. That this should not have happened to Jesus, and he owns his guilt. He says that this was wrong. This is actually you know, four things that are you know, pretty, pretty good. Pretty good place to start. So the question is, what is he missing? The next verse, uh, the rest of that last verse, I think I have it there. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself, and that's where his story ends. The story actually goes on. You can read it for yourself. The priest by a field, and it represents some Old Testament prophecies. We won't get into it. But as far as Judas is concerned, he went away, and he hung himself. When you line up Judas's story with Peter's, they both have big failures, Peter rejects Jesus three times. He doesn't turn him over, but he rejects him. Uh, all the disciples do. But for Peter, he eventually becomes the leader of the church. And so when you hold those two stories up, you know, Judas nailed it. He, he, he repented. He was remorseful. He, he gave the money back. He didn't keep it. You know, he said he was sorry. He acknowledged Jesus' innocent. You know, he tried. The one thing he didn't do that Peter did was Judas went off by himself. And Peter went back to his community. Failure will always feel final if you allow it to isolate you every time. And isn't that what failure does? When we mess up, especially when it impacts other people, people we love. Am I the only one who just wants to run away? Who doesn't want like I'm afraid that I've gone too far, I've done I can't be with those people who don't love me anymore? Failure. If we allow it to isolate us, we'll feel final. Here's what we know about the disciples. They've been trained by Jesus himself to love and forgive sinners. They weren't perfect, but don't you think they could have created in their heart forgiveness for Judas? Judas? The church hasn't always gotten this right, and it's possible the 12 disciples wouldn't have either, but isn't that what Jesus was all about? Couldn't there have been room in the kingdom of God for yet another sinner? The answer is always yes. Yes. The, the, the hardest thing about Judas's story is this, and I, I don't know how his story would have been different, but it's an important lesson for all of us whenever we feel that our failure has gotten too bad or we've reached a tipping point and failure feels final for us, and if you've not reached that point, thank God. I have, and I know many of others have as well. The failure is probably not as bad as you think, even if it's bad. And the community of God, the true community of God, is ready and willing to welcome you back. And if the community of God is unwilling, guess what, friends? It's not the community of God. It's, I mean, that's how it works. I'm a friend, he's agnostic. And he was talking about, a, I might have shared this story, I'm gonna share it again. Um, he was talking to a Christian friend of his, he was telling me about this. And uh, the, the Christian was saying something like, oh, I could never forgive them for that. You know, like people say sometimes when you're really mad. And he looked at this Christian who was saying, I could never forgive him for that. And he's like, wait, I thought that was like your whole thing. <laughs> like that's the whole, like I thought that was your thing. Like, and, and I was like, you've nailed it. This agnostic understands Christianity better than most Christians. It's the whole thing. Imagine how Judas' story would have been different if he would have waited three days. I mean, he felt like he, his failure was too great. He should live on. Maybe he felt like taking his own life was wretched. I don't know what was going on. Maybe he felt like he deserved it. He probably felt like he deserved it. Whatever the case may be, but imagine if he had waited just three days (laughs) and he'd seen Jesus rise from the dead. How would his story have been different? Here's the thing about Peter. He goes back to his community, but he doesn't seek out Jesus. Peter isn't like seeking to reconcile with Jesus. He thinks Jesus is dead just like everyone else. He just doesn't take his own life. Jesus seeks Peter out. Oh, imagine how Judas' story would have been different if he would have waited for Jesus to raise from the dead. Do you think Jesus would have sought him out? Depending on how you answer that question, <laughs> it says a lot about your view of Jesus. In fact, Jesus tells a story where he says, oh, I'll leave the 99 and go after the one. And if Judas isn't the one, I don't know who is. Oh, if Judas would have waited three days. If you're ever feeling desperate, Friends, the, the, this is an extremely important message because I know mental health is a, is a real thing and, and if you've not contemplated suicide, I know you know somebody who has. And whether they've shared that with you or not, I can't say. But just statistically, you have. Community is important. And knowing that you have a place to belong is important. And your The way you present yourself, the way you talk to people, the way we talk to each other, is how we build that community. And when people feel isolated, when they feel unworthy, when shame creeps in and they feel that failure has become final, it's not good. I'm amazed that when I mess up, I feel the worst when I'm alone, and then as soon as I realize people can still love me, I don't feel so bad. It's pretty obvious, but that's what I'm talking about. And we get to decide what kind of community we're going to be. So if you are feeling desperate or you know someone who's feeling desperate, knowing that they belong, that they're still loved, is essential. The other thing is, if you're feeling desperate, you know what, sometimes it just takes waiting three days. Just give it three more days. And after that, if you still haven't seen God show up or something get better, give it another three days. Like sometimes we just have to wait it out. We got to feel it out. We got to give ourselves just a little bit more time. This is a big conversation, and I can't. I promise you that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm likely to fail whenever we talk about something sensitive. And I appreciate your grace in that. It's a good sermon illustration for today. But I want us to be a place for even Judas. And until we can understand that there's room for even him. Uh, We don't quite understand what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks that we are able to abide in your love and in your grace, that you go after the one that is lost, that you are building a community that doesn't follow the rules of this world that you are shaping our hearts and minds not to be selfish or to have self-interest or to get more and more, but to be more gracious and more loving and more forgiving. God, give us grace when we fail big. Um, Teach us what it means to to hold uh, truth to power and to hold power accountable, while at the same time reminding ourselves that there is grace and there is forgiveness. Help us find that beautiful balance of truth and grace that we see in your Son. Give you thanks. Your name. Amen.